The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I am Tyler, your host, who knows a lot about these books and loves them. And I am approaching the end of The Dragon Reborn with you all, which is why it's time for us to get the opinions of my co-host, Greg, who doesn't know these books, but is very, very close to being 20% done with this series. How does it feel to be almost at one-fifth? It's been a year and a half. I got to give you something, I guess. (laughs) it's like the slowest progress bar on a download i've ever heard of as i download your wheel of time knowledge into my brain uh one week at a time in a very very small percentage at a time it feels like a (laughs) 1990s like windows machine where every once in a while the internet would slow down and it'd be like your download will be done in 87 years that's a little how this feels as we work (laughs) our way through these books uh, yeah, and it's it's exciting. You know, I think uh, as we record this originally, people in the future, we are uh, headed into the uh, holiday season and, you know, end of the year is always a time to kind of, uh, you know, look at your accomplishments and think back. And it's very cool that we are again finishing up a, a book. No, for the first time. No, again, finishing up again. a book right around this time of year. Uh, This is when we finished book one originally. And, uh, you know, you've already previewed as we uh, have on our Instagram and other places. We're going to start book four uh, fresh in the new year. Um, But we will not be covering two books next year because uh, book four is thick. And I actually mean that with the two C's instead of the CK, even if uh, they work. So. I'm okay with either version of thick to describe that book. It is long y'all, which is great, right? If there's one thing we know about Robert Jordan, it's that he takes time to wind up to something amazing. And I think that giving him 400 extra pages means either better wind up or better conclusion. It can only go well. Uh, We are obviously very excited about what is happening in like a month from now when we start the next book. (laughs) But I think we should probably also be excited for the fact that we had three really good chapters this week, right? It was light. It was breezy. It was enjoyable. If you've been waiting for the big conclusion or asking questions like, hey, Tyler, are those just regular fireworks? You finally have answers to those (laughs) kind of questions. How did you feel before we dive into the, the recap for the first of these three chapters? Yeah, I, I I certainly don't think all three of these books have been uh, exactly structured the same, but all of them have kind of led to uh, have featured a separation and then a convergence. And I think that's lasted different lengths of time. Yeah. Um, but this uh, very much is the convergence. And I think we see that in the structure of these chapters, let alone in their contents. So it's like, yes, it feels really good to get everybody back together again again, and have a lot of plot happening. So um, yeah. so it felt great. Um, I said uh, just before we turn microphones on, let's do this quickly so I can go upstairs and finish the dang book. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Tyler, will you please take us into uh, the first of our three chapters, which of course, as I, I say, which of course, in order to give myself time to look it up, yep. is uh, chapter 52, In Search of a Remedy. Uh, which 
is a chapter that begins with Matt and Tom having been searching the city for days and Tom is now sick, exactly like everyone who was reading this book two weeks ago predicted when he just coughed a little bit. Um, Matt is has found directions to get him to a wise woman um, and Tom is complaining, but Matt insists that he needs Tom in order to make his search. Tom has been finding most of the good information they've been finding. Um, and so they go to the mall, the uh, kind of poor neighborhood in Tier. Um, eventually, uh, he makes his way to the building that he was directed to and he sees tracks outside think it is uh, thinks it is odd and then decides to go in the front door unsurprisingly to us but very surprisingly to matt it is mother gwenna um she can still help tom even though she is feeling defeated about everything else that is going on in her life matt notices the girl's horses and once again thinks there is something odd about that and mother gwenna starts treating tom who absolutely hates the taste but can't do anything when she basically just forces him to sit down and take the medicine um, Mother Gwenna then starts um, kind of apologizing for her demeanor and starts saying that she can't say anything about what's causing her bad mood and says that it's tied up with the lords. Um, eventually, they um, kind of figure out what has been going on. Matt starts asking direct questions about the girls, and he finds that he is almost exactly three hours late. Um, that I Sedai took the girls to the to tear. At first, Matt is relieved because he thinks the girls and I Sedai isn't as bad as it would seem. And then when he learns how hard the girls fought, uh, he realizes just how bad it is and, and realizes that he needs to break into the stone. He asks Mother Gwenna if she will be willing to watch Tom. She says yes, even though Tom doesn't want to have any part in this, he can't resist. And then Matt pays her well and heads out. Um, he says that no woman is ever going to make him fit to have in his home, in home even though Mother Gwenna says that it would take a special woman to train him. And eventually he looks up at the stone and starts feeling the dice tumbling inside of his head and sets off to break into the unbreakable into tower. That last sentence I said didn't make any sense. So please say literally anything to distract the viewers from my terrible grammar. <laughs> what did you think of this chapter? Um, point of order, you're, you're, we don't have viewers, we have listeners. So there you go. I'll... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> just point out a second error to cover the first error. Uh, Thanks for that. Yeah, I I think um, you know I uh, would love to be like called it uh, because that's what the internet has trained me you're supposed to do. But um, the fact that Mother Gwenna kind of continued here, I think had been signaled enough that it, it's really not like so shocking that that we called it. So um, you know, more than anything, it's like. Um, it felt like machinations to make sure that it made sense that everybody knows everything that we already know. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the convergence pattern. It's like, as these characters converge with each other, yes, we all know they're headed to the stone and they should just be able to get there, but the book still needs to provide us with reasons why each of them ends up there at a particular time. And so um, it was helpful uh as you said, to kind of get the the syncing up to be like, oh, okay, um, the this is three hours behind the girls, so the girls have just been captured and are headed yeah. that way. Um, and then, other than that, I thought it was a little sad that Tom's gonna get um kind of shuffled to the side for the what seems like the climax of the book, which yeah. we'll call that the loyal position from last yeah. book, where it's like, all right, loyal's shuffled to the side so we don't have to do anything with him. Um, more on that thought in a, in a little while, but uh, that's where I came down on this chapter. Yeah, I, I think I like that as a framing for this chapter is this is kind of the last moment where Robert Jordan is kind of getting the pieces in order before he starts developing the game for the kind of the final you know part of the book. Um, the one moment that really worked for me in this section is you kind of described this idea of convergence, which we've talked about before, obviously has something to do in this world with the idea of Taviran. But I thought the version of this that really landed for me was the fact that Matt and Tom have been deliberately seeking out every inn in town for it seems like days and days and haven't found anything but that's not how Matt works he only finds something when he needs to get lucky by arriving at exactly the right wise woman's home as opposed to trying to find an inn where he is searching every single one of them and I thought that kind of Matt later on is like I can't believe I'm this lucky to end up at Mother Gwenna's and it's kind of like well it's because it's the first time you've actually had a 
chance to get lucky, you dummy. You you had this revelation mm-hmm. like three weeks ago and didn't act on it. So I just thought that was really clever by writing or clever writing by Robert Jordan to have that kind of not occur to Matt, but be kind of in the background of the first half of the chapter. That being said, I didn't really have much other than that coincidence to say up until we kind of get the the info dump and learn what Matt's plans look like. Did you have anything else of either about that or just kind of the early section of this chapter? Um, I'll use I'll use my thoughts as a bridge. I mean, I was playing the Matt game that I've been playing, which is who's driving. And I interpreted uh-huh. the first half exactly like you did. And, and we had gotten this key piece of information that his look, luck is specific to when there is a random element of chance. And um, I guess I'll pause to just say that's a cool superpower, right? Yeah. Like um, it's kind of, you know, I hope he starts to think more about this, although it is Matt. Um, but if he thought more about this, he could start to create situations of probability and chance within his general yeah. planning and actions. And I think that could be really cool like that. That actually could be its own comic book, right? Of of some character with incredible good luck who just has to engineer it. It's Domino. Oh, you looked like you had a title. Oh, okay. There it is. I was like, it's, yeah, you have to have something there. Uh, Domino? The, I don't think I realized that about Domino. Yeah, from Deadpool 2, I think, is where you would get her cinematically. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that's her power is mm-hmm. manipulating random events. Um, so yeah, go read Domino. There's probably a good comic somewhere nice. in the Marvel canon. Uh, <laughs> that being said, I think you're exactly right. Like it's just it's cool. I'm excited for you and everyone yeah. listening to get a feel for what that looks like. Because if there's one thing I know about Robert Jordan, it's he has time to develop how these sorts of things work and what the implications of them are. We've just got to give him that time. There's only twelve books left, y'all. Um, Second half of the chapter, then, I thought that the most interesting kind of moment in the interaction between Mother Gwenna and Matt, at least for my from my perspective, is when uh, Mother Gwenna is describing how much the girls resisted and kind of emphasizing this wasn't just the Aes Sedai taking back some girls who ran away. And then Matt suddenly kind of it's almost difficult to figure it out on the first read. I had to go back and reread it. Matt has punched a hole in the wall and hasn't realized it until after the fact. And I thought that was both really telling of Matt and then also kind of reopens what I think you were referring to earlier, this idea of like, who is Matt and the question swirling around him about kind of the two Matts, if you will. I thought this was the most compelling moment of that in the chapter. Yeah, um, I'm in the middle of a office rewatch so i just was thinking about andy bernard uh (laughs) the wall at dunder mifflin um yes so to continue the bridge there so uh i like that one and then i like uh that he kisses mother gwenna yeah kind of like either kind of moved by joy but i had a similar like who's driving this and i i'm not going to get the exact order of those events correctly but between those two Mother Gwenna's like, you remind me of my husband. I'm like, oh yep. geez. <laughs> like, yeah, this this seems like a, a troubled, troubled uh relationship in the past. Uh that it's wall punching and sweet kisses. Uh so um that's uh, both really interesting to me. Who's driving Matt? I guess the third I would put on that list um is the very end of the chapter, just to go a little out of order, would be when he says he bids Tom farewell. Um yeah. it's like it it was a pleasure to have known you or something like that. And it's, yeah. it's like, whoa, like he even comments like, well, that's a weird way to say that, which always kind of raises the flag of, is this the other voice like determined he's going to, to lose or certain he's going to lose. Uh, you know, we always get the darker side of he's playing with the dark one's magic. So, yeah. or the dark one's luck. So what exactly is going to happen? But that was my list of who's driving Matt. Um, it's that too. I'm not going to repeat that. It's cool. It's just a fun game to be guessing yeah. at these times and kind of thinking about a young person becoming an adult and how they often play games where they're trying to figure out who yeah. who's driving uh, the body, who's who's in control here. It just it works thematically as well as just kind of plot wise. It's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I think you make a really good point. We could probably play the who's driving the character game with any character, but for most of them under 20, the answer is the libido. So it's nice to have an 18-year-old who there that's not the answer. That's pretty spectacular. Um, I would just add one more moment into that, which is um, you had mentioned Mother Gwenna kind of associating a lot of the things that Matt is doing with her uh, deceased husband. But there was a moment in that where she was like, yeah, you're going to find a woman someday who's going to like make you into a really good husband and matt's reaction is like ha never and a i'm not sure whether that is just like matt being matt or whether there's you know that other whatever it is we're you know interpolating or asking questions about but then i think the other part of that is anytime that a character is is this early in a series no i'm never going to change in that way that immediately sets off my dramatic irony alarm and i'm like well wait a minute how it is going to cause this man to change and become a good husband. Because we've got 12 books. It There's a decent chance it happens when you drop that kind of foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, I think that, and then the only last moment that I had in this chapter that I just want to mention is Matt hears the dice tumbling in his head. And I don't have anything to say about mm. that, but it is a phrase we will hear frequently. So I need to mention the first time that I had really keyed in on it, keyed in on it being emphasized in the text. In so it, it resonated in my mind because it's like a debonair move, right? It's mm -hmm. like you know, it's it's like pure charisma. It's like I hear the dice tumbling in my head. Um, you know, I can hear a bad action movie star going like, "Let's roll the dice," right? Like, <laughs> and and off into action, and it it just kind of felt like that. So, yeah. um, you know, and obviously the third chapter we'll talk about uh tonight starts with Matt's perspective, and so it just feels like this one was really to get you kind of amped up and to say, "Okay, it's happening now." The roller coaster is flying at this point. So, uh, yeah, let's burst the powder keg. I'm, how many of our metaphors can I get in uh, at once? That, that, uh, yeah, that one was go. both solid <laughs> and maybe no longer a metaphor. Chapter 53, <laughs> the flow of the spirit. Uh, Perrin walks back from the blacksmith where he apparently has been continuing to work for the past few days. Um, Zareen has been watching him most of the days, including when he told the blacksmith that he wouldn't make a gate if it was for a high lord, and he seemed very surprised by that. Um, Perrin is finding himself confused about Fayil and how much she's watching him and how she and how he feels about her, um, and he almost slips up as they are talking and calls her Fayil, and when he does, she smiles and asks if he's ever considered wearing a beard. Um, Moraine and Lan are at the inn, and Moraine says that Rand is in tear. Um, Lan gives a number of pieces of evidence of this, including as many weddings in the past few days as normally would be in six months, as many murders as would be in a year, a child who fell off a balcony should have died and didn't, and then also the fact that the first of Mayenne has apparently reached a trade agreement that she previously never would possibly have engaged in. Um, but Moraine says we don't actually need to know any of that. Everyone in the city is dreaming of Rand in the stone with Kalendor. Um, Moraine and Lance, and they intend to deal with Belal that night. Um, and that's when Zareen, Perrin, and Loyal are sent to leave for Tarvalon. Zareen goes upstairs to get Loyal, and she says that she is happy to run. She doesn't want to get involved in this dangerous situation. And once she get in, gets upstairs, there is a dull thump as a body landing on the ground. Uh, Perrin goes upside to check, and, or goes upstairs to check, and find that Fayil is on the ground, and there is a small wooden hedgehog near her. Her. We have actually heard reference to this way back earlier when we learned of what was taken from the Black Tower or from the White Tower by the Black Aja. Um, there, this was a trap apparently meant for Moraine, which has put Zareen and put her into the world of dreams, Teleron Riode. Um, when Moraine asks the innkeeper how it could have gotten there, uh, he says that two women came and left a gift for her, um, which Moraine then deduces Balal knows that she is there, and this was a trap intended to keep her out of his plans. Um, Fayil is no longer in her body and Moraine says that she is most likely trapped in Teleron Riode and says that um, she doesn't have time to go get her but there are wolves in the world of dreams and so Perrin may be able to rescue her um, Perrin asks Loyal to watch over him as you had alluded to putting him on the sideline for a third book in a row at the end of the book and then Perrin jumps into the trap himself, going into the world of dreams, where he sees Hopper, is told to leave, and he says, "I if I do not face this, it is not worth living. And uh, Hopper's response is, then we hunt, and they leave to hunt. Um, 
this is a fun chapter for me because it starts with an interesting parent character piece and then ends with me being able to tease you about a dream sequence. That's a solid chapter as far as I am <laughs> concerned. How did you feel about a flow of the spirit? Um, uh, again, a little bit of a table setting feel. Let's just keep inching everybody to where they need to be for the conflict, but a very entertaining one. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and honestly, you know, we were just celebrating, uh, you know, uh, the roll of the dice in the head and let's hunt is the yeah. same thing, right? Like it's, except this time it's a wolf, uh, saying the cool action one liner to, to start the action. So, um, certainly kind of, um, a, a nice kind of energy boost and, um, if anything, it, it actually raised my expectations for the next chapter, which the next chapter might have not quite delivered on because it was like I got so amped up. And okay. I think I'm probably more excited for next week. Uh, I think, yeah. you know, anyway, we'll get into that later. Um, but uh, I would say the biggest thing for me is it felt like we flipped a switch on Perrin um, where Perrin's like, oh, I hate this girl. Oh, I hate this girl. And then she gets into danger and was like, dang it. Like, like yeah. we got to save her. Like she's, she's our person. And you know, it's, it's not that I didn't expect that connection. It just felt like finally, um, parent got it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I am, uh, oftentimes a very bad friend in general, but when a friend goes into crisis mode, it's like, I do the same thing. It's like one of my people's in danger. And I yeah. like react very quickly and strongly. And, I don't know. I think I get it from my family. We'll psychoanalyze me later, but um, it's, it is a way to just like kind of get you amped up when you see somebody's like virtue, right. That, that yeah. they care enough about somebody else. And um, you know, there's a bit of a, a flirt before that flirtation before that. So, so, you know, what did you say uh, last chapter? It could just be a, the libido making yeah. a flip, uh, but it does feel a little more noble in this case. Uh, I'd just like to point out that you just previewed Through the Glass Column season 16. Greg's on the couch now, and I am all about <laughs> that season of podcasting. Uh, I think the moment oh, that man. worked for me best in this section that you were just describing was when um, Perrin is thinking about Min's visions, and he thinks to himself he, in the narration, I think it's described as, you know, for the you know, like umpteenth time, basically. He thinks, I, I think that uh, Fayil might be the most beautiful woman in the world that Min was referring to and told me to run away from. And this is the first time his response was, but I think I'd rather she be the Falcon. And that I think is the moment that he has kind of turned internally. And then we obviously see the external action based on that later in the chapter. So I think you're right. This is a chapter very much about kind of Aaron flipping the Fayil switch, right? And even at the end of the chapter, when he's referring to her as the Falcon in the dream, he has never been willing to refer to uh, Fayil as Fayil, which means Falcon. And so I think that that maybe tells us something about where he is at in terms of accepting her or accepting her, you know, persona or or whatever it is that is, you know, kind of going on, you know, in throughout these chapters. Um other than that, I think the moment that really stood out in this early section of the chapter is when Perrin almost calls her Fayil and she immediately jumps on it and is clearly kind of happy. She smiles immediately. What was your thought about this early section of the chapter? I guess I'm just pulling out favorite moments instead of actually adding anything, but they're good moments. Let me let me say how <laughs> nice they are. Yeah, and I guess I would say it's nice that even as the plot is really ramping up, we don't lose sight of the characters. Uh -huh. I think, um, you know, a lot of books do that when things get stabby, stabby, slashy, slashy. It's like, oh, well, let's just get the action through. And and Robert Jordan doesn't let us lose sight of the fact that the characters are here and the connections matter. And yeah. that, I, in my opinion, is what makes the whole rest of the book seem worth it. We may wait, you know, 600 pages for the action, but it's not time wasted. It's, you know, development yeah. so that the action actually means something and that 
you know, when in, in the case of this chapter, when Fail eventually falls, it's like, oh, now I'm worried about her. Whereas, you know, yeah. even three or four chapters ago, it was like, I don't care about this person. Like, why is she following them? Why is she getting added in? Um, yeah. So I think it's it's a credit to his slow pacing that all of this means more. And, you know, we yeah. don't often talk about the fact that this is one of, if not the most popular fantasy series in the world. And, you know, fantasy series are great and they but they come and go right yeah i always like when somebody comes up and asks you about like have you read the chronicles of gleepglorp and you're like what what are you talking about like that's not a real thing yeah. uh whatever it is right because there's there's so many that of these series that come and go but wheel of time is one that always stands and gets yeah. mentioned you know i guess lord of the rings fans would probably get to claim that although it feels like a different kind of uh yeah. fantasy in some ways and 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 like um a forerunner to everything but it's but definitely in terms of modern fantasy it is wheel of time and so all of that is to say i think that comes from moments like this where you actually yeah. get to remember who the characters are and, and you feel like they're real people because that moves us all yeah right before we were on the air we were actually just talking about a movie that definitely hasn't just come out we are not revealing when this podcast was released <laughs> um but uh, we were talking about the marvels which is uh something that i absolutely adore it's a 90 minute movie that is magical but there were a few moments at the end of that book where it was like <laughs> this is like a really well acted effective emotional character moment and i'm not sure i'm fully invested enough because the movie was so brief in the first section of the film and i feel like mm. what you're identifying is robert jordan putting in the time here and then even if we go further back like the hammer is what this is building on right that chapter from a week or two ago where perrin was working at the blacksmiths and so i think that willingness to just say like yeah i know we only have 50 pages until this book is done but wait a minute we need to really reestablish where perrin and fail are at before we can dive into the action i think that's something that a lot of writers aren't willing to do and it's it's part of why this series endures and works the way it does um you are absolutely correct about that this book is amazing in no large part because it is able to do just an exceptional amount of world building and exposition in like a page and a half of Moraine telling Perrin how unobservant he is. Like, I think it's very well yeah. done how many little details about Tyr we get in less than a page of Lan telling Perrin everything he's missed. Was there anything that stood out in that kind of Perrin and Lan section to you? Because those are two characters we haven't really gotten a whole lot of character moments from. They've been mostly exposition devices for Perrin in this book, I feel like. But it's good exposition here, I guess, is is what I have to say for it. Yeah, I mean, again, as, as we near the end of the book, we're, I think, naturally thinking about who, who got a lot of and who got a little. And Lan has really been sidetracked this time, sidelined this time, it feels yeah. like. He's had a couple good scenes here and there. Um, and so I felt like so much of that is just to like tell us like, oh, they've been working. It's like yeah. we've been busy, right? They've been out uh, actually listening to people actually playing this. And so, again, this this theme that has come up before that Rand is so strongly Tavir and he's warping everything. Um, I still don't know that I fully understand why everybody gets married when, when he's coming to town. The yeah. dream part makes sense to me. Um, uh, and there's one more I'm missing in there, or at least one more about like um, that they didn't notice, um, like the weddings. Um, but yeah. but it's like, what what are what? Why is this happening? Or it's just all all strange. So uh, but the idea that the whole town has been suffering and like losing sleep um, yeah. kind of puts me in the mindset back to the pandemic where it's like, you know, everybody's terrible. Like, don't even bother. We're yeah. all terrible. We're not going to be doing all right. So don't ask. Um, and it kind of felt like, you know, if you had had somebody like whistling and and strutting through town uh, yeah. during that time and and somehow missed the fact that everybody's locked in their house and miserable, um, yeah. it, it felt like that. It's that thing where you're not allowed to ask a grad student how their dissertation is going during COVID. It yeah. felt like that, but it was everyone and their life. And I think you're right. That's kind of the feeling in tear here as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it 
reinforces the dynamic that Moraine and Lan are reading it all, right? They are yeah. constantly in their larger chess game, reading the situation, understanding all the pieces that's going on. And Perrin has the luxury of like just going and building stuff and making yeah. stuff uh with his with his hammer. Um and you know I I think of so many people I know that um kind of choose to be Perrin with the the hammer instead of like watching, you know, the rise of fascism in America or yeah. the the destruction of the climate around us, right? And and I I sound like I'm making light and and I'm not, but it is true that we're in a moment where everybody would like to just go make stuff with a hammer and if somebody gets a a reprieve to do that, you know, you kind of respect it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that's what is so refreshing about Perrin as a character for me is there are so many characters I feel like in in fantasy who are reluctant heroes who stop being reluctant the second they overcome that reluctance, right? It's like, I have 50 pages where I don't want to go on an adventure and then I'm happy to go on an adventure. And Perrin is never that. He is always kind of, you know, thinking about, you know, what is my place and where do I, you know, fit and how can I, what can I do after the violence is done? And I think that that is just really interesting and appealing to me and it is the exact opposite of moraine in this chapter who is just like okay we're gonna go kill one of the most powerful ancient evil creatures in the world oh yeah i was about to get caught in a trap guess i got lucky let's go murder him anyway like she is on <laughs> task and not even a deadly trap can take her away from it i don't have much else to say about that other than like moraine is driven at this point and i think we should take notice for future books uh and really, it is the dungeon master chastising the party. You forgot to say check for traps, uh, right? Like <laughs> yeah. has that attitude uh, with like, of course, you should say check for traps, even though uh, all dungeon masters take delight when the party does not. Um, so yes, we do. Uh, it it's a, a fun moment. And um, it is also kind of wound up in the like, um, it's just a hedgehog. Like, uh, yeah. how bad could it be? Like that there's that that cute dissonance as well. Yeah. That is kind of a reinforcement of the Perrin Moraine dynamic in a in a, you know, perhaps two on the nose symbol of yeah. like, you can be cutesy, but it's also deadly around here. So um yeah. And then I, I mean, my notes for this chapter are pretty thin after that. I just thought I loved Loyal's oath and yet hated that he made it because yeah. it could really mean something, right? When he says, um, I will not let anybody in here unless I'm killed first, right? Or till yeah. till I'm destroyed. Um, and that feels troubling. Um, yeah. but you know, hopefully it doesn't come up. But, um, you know, it, it really felt to me I was I liked this moment and, and the whole kind of end of the chapter where parents like I'm going in and uh, we're going to figure this out and, and all these things. It felt to me um, I, it, it took me a little while to put my finger on it. Then I realized it's the Matrix. Right. It's okay. like Morpheus is in trouble. Right. And and actually Morpheus is held in that kind of suspended. This is the first yeah. Matrix movie for people who've lost sight of the Matrix in the 25 years since it came out um and morpheus is kind of held suspended they can't get him out of the matrix and he's he's stuck within it and trinity and neo are just like let's go in let's do this and yep. you know that that's obviously a franchise that's playing a lot with dream states and so on so the fact that um fiel and i i think i've tried to switch in my head now and not say yep. Zareen, uh but fiel is fiel fiel Aiel um is like Aiel is how I always remember it. Okay, okay. Um is trapped between spaces in we assume Telerod Riyadh Riyad. and um Riyad. uh and so um Perrin happens to have the ability to quote unquote jack in and yep. go rescue her and my other note and i swear this was in it before anywhere else i was like well and we also know Egwene is going in there an awful lot and will yep. also be there so not only is are, are we headed into a trap in uh telerod riode but we also happen to have a chosen one type figure there ready to help us there so um Cool. I was not yeah. expecting a two-tier final conflict. And I think this sets up 
we've got the real world and we've got Telerod Riode and that two tier. We're going to cut between those two. Very George Lucas. Let's, you know, why have one battle when you can have two? Star wipe, star wipe. Uh, <laughs> I, I think you're exactly right. This is kind of like building up the energy. You can almost hear like the swelling Marvel mu- music at the end of this chapter, right? Like this is the moment where all of the Avengers put their hands in a circle and we decide that it's time for the big action sequence. Um, I think the moment that really sells it, though, is the very, very end of the chapter. If I do not free the Falcon, then I do not care, brother. Then we hunt, brother. Oh, it's great. It's so good. Uh, any last Very thoughts on this chapter before we head on to the kind of first big moment of the book somehow in chapter 54? <laughs> uh, no, I think I think we've got it all. So I'm happy to have you uh, just push us into that uh, final chapter of the night. Excellent. Chapter 54, Into the Stone, in which Tyler probably dies trying to summarize this giant chapter. Matt realizes it is a bad idea to be on the roof, but also realizes it is not sensible for him uh, to be up there. Uh, He is just not a sensible person. He's okay with it. Um, He has made a bundle out of all of his fireworks, and he's kind of got them all together so we can carry them all in one place. Um, The wall of the city runs right up against the Stone of Tear, which he thinks looks climbable, um, but it's incredibly high. He thinks it would be crazy, and he thinks not even Rand would be crazy enough to climb. And then he looks up and immediately sees someone who is already trying to climb the stone. Um, He hears movement sees blades it is an Aiel actually four of them he starts humming a song about bad luck and then Julian Sandar a thief catcher who we have met earlier also shows up and all of them have kind of a Mexican standoff it seems like and then all of them reveal that they are all trying to get into the stone and they basically agree to leave one another alone except for Julian and Matt who are now basically going to be teaming up and trying to get into the stone so that they can potentially break the girls out Uh, Matt agrees to go along with Julian's plan, but then decides before he is going to, he is going to create a distraction by putting all of his fireworks into an arrow slit on the side of the stone and hopefully drawing the guards. He does so, but it makes an explosion that is much larger than he expects it to be, and the arrow slit is now a massive hole in the wall. He changes his plans and charges in with his quarterstaff. Julian is battling with him and then realizes that he is attacking defenders of the stone and he will probably be held, you know, in treason or whatever. If he gets caught, Matt assures him that he cannot channel, that the explosion was just fireworks, and they make their way towards the cell. We then go towards Rand's POV, in which he hears alarms. He is inside the stone, it appears, and his the wound on his side is burning, and he thinks that he needs to end it all, and he will no longer be hunted. We then cut into Egwene's point of view. She wakes up after dreaming of Matt, and she immediately is extremely afraid, thinking that she won't be collared again, and the other girls who are in the cell with her start to calm her down. Um, They are in a completely empty cell, apparently shielded and unable to uh, get to the power, and uh, she is told by the other girls that one of the Black Aja is outside of the cell maintaining the shields on them. Um, She, uh, Egwene, then thinks that there may be a way for them to get around this, that while she cannot channel in the real world, it is possible that she will be able to channel in the world of dreams, and when she learns from the girls that there are 13 Murdrail who are Coming. She says it would be better to die and that they need to take the chance of going into Teleron Riode because then at least they have a chance to get out. She then tries to fall asleep and does so waking up in the world of dreams. In the world of dreams, she is excited to learn that she can channel. She goes into the uh, heart of the Stone of Tear where she sees Joya Beer. She, sh- she shields her and then also ties her up in weaves of air, uh, surprising herself by being able to channel multiple weaves at the same time. She then also surprises herself, discovering that she can what she calls tie off the weaves and cause them to continue working after she is no longer directly channeling them. Um, She then threatens Joya repeatedly, eventually basically beats her and kind of tortures her briefly, and then feels bad about the fact that she has just done that, realizes it is the second time she has given in to those base desires, and then she thinks to herself and actually says out loud, this is the second time I've done this, I don't like doing it. I really need to learn to cut throats instead. We then go into Perrin's POV. He is in a dream in the Stone of Tear, literally killing soldiers as a wolf. Um, He breaks uh, the lock to a door, goes inside and see Fael there, covered in chains, and... um, 
She says she keeps dreaming that he would come, and then she immediately vanishes. Um, Heron asks Hopper what just happened, and he says in the world of dreams, they can have the same hunt with many endings, and so they must hunt again, and they go off uh, continuing to hunt with the wolves. Um, and Heron notes that there are only one type of hunter that is more vicious than wolves, and it is humans. Finally, we are back in Matt's POV, where the alarm gongs are still going off, and Matt is fighting an extremely talented warrior, who it turns out is a high lord darlin um matt eventually is able to knock him out and then accidentally knocks out two additional high lords both of who are coming after him and matt basically inadvertently gets them with the back of his staff while he is doing other things and he thinks that his luck is finally paying off a little bit they follow the secret passage that was revealed by the high lord as julian suggests it will lead even quicker towards the cells and this is where we made greg stop reading even though there were only two chapters left that was a mean thing for me to do but hey you got to read this good chapter and there's good ones coming next week <laughs> right you don't hate me too much no not at all it's the the fun and the curse of the the format um and um you know i think our readers uh have always told us they they generally enjoy this too and and it it is just uh a little different when you can decide when to just binge and not binge or skip episodes or not i mean never skip <laughs> episodes at least download them to keep our numbers up uh i mean what comes to mind i'm gonna make another movie reference um uh, I guess tonight's random movies uh, feels like Dunkirk uh, where Dunkirk, if people aren't familiar with, Oh, the faces Tyler. Sorry, Greg just saw me make a horrific face when he said that I, Christopher the, movie comes up. The, the drone <laughs> in the background destroyed me. I was two hours in with a headache. Continue. <laughs> Uh, but Dunkirk has a cool thing where it's like, I'm going to get this wrong because I saw it one time in the theater, but it's like uh, one plot line is a day, one plot line is an hour, and yeah. one plot line is a week. Maybe it's a week, a day, an hour. Something like and that, yeah. The way the way it's constructed is it's like long stretches of each, and then as they collapse in on themselves, you cut between the strands very quickly and so that comes to mind here because it's yeah. and we we saw this last book as well it's like i can't afford whole chapters anymore i'm gonna cut rapidly between them to keep your eye on all the things moving and um actually dunkirk plays the same little game where it's like you see an explosion happen in one that is yep. in the background of the other one that is in affects the characters of the third and it's kind of all happening here and um, it's fun. So the last thing I'll say as general, I did not expect the Aiel to be here. And if I were to yeah. guess what feels like huge about this, it's that we are also seeing them collapse in into this cutting and the yeah. prophecies that they've been tracking also be the ones that Rand's tracking. And so all of that getting folded in, it feels like to me when we get to the end of this book, say in a week, uh, like I'm not going to go finish this in an hour, uh, that uh, it will have been important that the IEL were there and might yeah. further align our main heroes with that faction in presumably the conflict to come. Yeah, I think that's exactly spot on in terms of how we are thinking about this. Um, you were describing Dunkirk. The thing that always comes to my mind for this is actually a book by Brandon Sanderson, who obviously finished this series. But I think one of his first novels he got published was a standalone fantasy book called Elantris. And in Elantris, the book follows three main characters. And for most of the book, the chapters kind of alternate where it's, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And then towards the end of the book the rhythm breaks down it gets out of order and then a fourth and fifth character get added in and that's really what this felt like to me is i feel like this entire book we've been tracking like three main threads there's like the perrin moraine lan fail thread and then there's the matt tom thread and then there's the girls and now this chapter is like oh no there's also the aiel they've been dipping in between all of the threads but they are also converging here and then we get julin and in the previous chapter we get mother Gwenna, we're sort of getting all of the characters coming back together, whereas I think I maybe just anticipated the main characters coming together at the end of this mm. book. And I, I think that just works really effectively. And that's really all I kind of have about the first half of this map section. It's like all of the people are here. Cool. You were just about to say something animatedly. <laughs> Well, all I was going to add is I would say you're exactly right. 
And what I would say is a credit to Robert Jordan is that it both works structurally and mythologically, right? Because yeah. what you just described is about how the book is structured and folding in. And that is accounted for in the mythology of the Taviran and Rand becoming a more and more powerful Taviran. Again, the the thing that works for me always when I'm thinking about Taviran is I continue to think about the model of, uh, uh, I think, Newtonian physics, which is that it's all yeah. objects on a cloth and the more dense the object, the further down the cloth pulls. And yeah. I, I always think of that visual as that is what Rand is. And Rand is essentially becoming bigger and more dense and warping that cloth further and further down yeah. so that everything is getting sucked in. Um, he's gone from being Earth to Jupiter and, and maybe approaching the sun, although there are a lot of books to go. 20% uh, yeah. is not that far through this series so um it just feels like that i mean that's cool right and and i know um that i think in terms of your taste in fantasy as i understand it that's what really gets you is it's like if you can like come up with something cool that has that same kind of mythological plus kind of practical plot writerly valence i think both those together work really well and i'm the book series we always joke about you tried to get me to read and i couldn't the malazan yeah. series is that right yeah malazan that, that, that had that right that's yeah yeah it had a similar thing going on so that's where i'm pulling that from ha <laughs> ha i got tyler on the couch now i'm psychoanalyzing tyler it's all because your mom didn't love you uh go on <laughs> you're too good at this game um no i i think that uh you're exactly right and i think for me what makes this work is the fact that i really like when um books have kind of magic systems that seem simple or seem straightforward and then they are constantly playing around with but what about that edge case as we would call it in in mathematics right what about that weird situation that the rules didn't really account for what happens when we go there and i think that's what i love about this kind of structure of tavirin or uh convergence is literally what it's called in the malazan series um like that idea i think is so interesting to me because it forces authors to think about the climaxes of their book in a different way. And I think that that can lead to really interesting things. Um, the most notable of these in the early section of this book for me is there's something really lovely about the Aiel immediately identifying that Matt's um, kind of key characteristic is a gambler. Um, Matt says something like, this seems like a bad idea, but I'm willing to roll the dice. And Ruark, the clan chief, immediately is like, do as you will, gambler. And I was like, ooh, that's a good title for Matt. Um, was there any other kind of like small details in the, let's just say the entirety of the Matt section that stood out to you? Because I think the only other question I have in this section of the chapter is, was this good enough to answer your question of, hey, Tyler, are those just fireworks? <laughs> um, I think... Uh, you know, there's the narration continues to just be like, it is lucky that these I yield were looking to my, make a deal and things like that. Yeah. Um, which which again felt like probability wise, they're they're still they're still playing with that. And um yes. Oh, and it's just making me recall uh because it was a language thing. We skipped over the detail that Mother Gwenna talks like um the Amerlin seat. Oh, uh, which yeah. was in that first chapter tonight and how that detail was like, oh, so funny. You talk like somebody I know. And she's like, and you talk like somebody I know. And that yeah. kind of uh, unlocks the whole thing. Uh, felt like uh, also a, a funny kind of uh, weird thing. So yeah. anyway, so so you're right. These kind of how much characters are revealing with uh, kind of small linguistic things. Um, and then moving into the fireworks, it's like, boom opens up the stone and as i understood it it was it just so happened to make a space big enough that the aiel could also fit in so that that's another kind of lucky thing did i interpret that correctly yeah i i, I don't know whether there's a direct description of the aiel entering through the same hole or maybe somewhere nearby but the fact that all of these things are happening at once it's like the aiel are doing something that's distracting from the explosion which is distracting from the cell which is distracting from rand like the timing, I think, is exactly, it's just, it's too perfect to be anything but Tavirin perfection, if you will. Um, 
Yeah, that is my full list. Other than the fact that Matt has to immediately reassure <laughs> Julin that he can't channel, I had nothing else. Mm. And then, honestly, my notes about Rand section of the chapter are four words long. So, anything to say about Rand or the end of the Matt section? All all I wrote about Rand is he's driven by the sword, right? Like okay. all he's thinking about is Calendor. I mean, it's only a paragraph, right? It's very brief, yeah. but but it seems like that's the takeaway. He's here for one reason. Um, I think, and it made me reflect a little bit about how when the prophecy first came around forever ago, I think I pictured it as like a literal stone, like right. almost like there was a stone and a sword on a balance and like one, and then, oh, okay, so we're understanding the stone is a fortress and it seemed yep. like this, the fortress could never fall. Um, and in my mind, I'm picturing a lot of like Helm's Deep, right? Especially where it's like the yeah. arrow slit and the explosion. I'm like, oh, this all feels very Helm's Deep from from the second Lord of the Rings film, especially, but also book. Yeah. I, I'm debating a Lord of the Rings reread because we've been doing so much fantasy. I think it might be one of my winter projects. Yeah, I saw that face too. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch Dunkirk and I'm gonna read Lord of the Rings and you can't stop me. So no problem. Talk to me about the two though. towers. I actually really enjoy the Lord of the Rings. The two towers is just a slog <laughs> of a book that turned into a good movie somehow. Uh, I think for Egwene, the the first like paragraph is what stood out to me. Right, she wakes up screaming that she is not going to be collared, and we have been like every time we have an Egwene chapter, I think we're like, oh, I'm surprised she's still dealing with this PTSD from the Sean Chan, but like. Credit to Robert Jordan. I think a lot of authors in the 90s would have been like, oh, the young girl was a damsel in distress in a bad situation, and now she's free and we can get on the good stuff. And Robert Jordan seems to be like, no, this is going to stick with her. It, these things linger. Um, as a Vietnam vet, I can completely understand why he would recognize that PTSD lingers. But like, I, I think it's effectively done in the early section of this chapter. That was what stood out to me of all of it. The rest of it felt kind of like an info dump. What What was your take on this Egwene section? Well, first I'm laughing because for whatever reason, when you started your uh, clause, your sentence with the dependent clause as a Vietnam veteran, I was like, Tyler was in Vietnam? <laughs> uh, was, but, but you were uh, referring, of course, to the author of the book. Um, yes, you know, it's kind of like um, in a film or a TV show where somebody ends up with like a bunch of bruises and then like two scenes later they're gone. And mm -hmm. it's like time didn't pass far enough for those cuts to heal or those bruises to heal, yeah. but like makeup's expensive and continuity's annoying. So we'll just get rid of them really quickly. Yeah. Um, and this was a reminder that like, no, this, this is something that matters. And so I, I had that will not be a prisoner again. And then my kind of summary of this section is like, um, this got a little dark, like Egwene yeah. is going to some, some dark places. And I think we previously talked about, um, the Spider-Man movie, right. Where, where Andrew Garfield says, uh, oh, yeah. I got dark. Right. And, uh, I, my mind is like, oh God, I hope that was the podcast. I said the, that on, it's like, I got dark, I got vengeful. And, and there's something yeah. very dark sidey here that, uh, Egwene kind of gives into those temptations only I would say at the end of her section to say like no I'm not gonna do it again so it's like she gives into the temptation but pulls herself back in an important way she pulls herself back in an important way but also in the darkest important way possible because I will point out <laughs> Egwene's response is not I never want to torture someone again it's well, I guess if I'm not going to torture someone again, I can probably do that by just killing them before we get to the torture part, which, you know, not ideal and probably tells us something about where she is at as a character. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting about this section is just the number of times that Egwene does something with channeling, not knowing what she is doing, and it works, right? In this section, she channels three flows at the same time, something she's never done before. She learns how to make weaves continue after she is no longer actively channeling, something that we have never had mentioned before. And then she teaches herself how to do both of those things on top of the fact that she shields someone having only seen others do it like 
something is going on with Egwene and the girls being able to do magic that they have only seen once. I don't know if it's a special talent of theirs or if it's part of their power set or what, but we should point out that Egwene does stuff right here that she has never been trained to do in a world where you normally have to go to school for several years to learn to magic well. Um, And it did remind me, it, I, I thought back to the original tests that she yeah. and Nynaeve we've seen go through at, yeah. with some terror angry all right. And one of them could channel there in a way that they weren't expecting to. Was that was that Nynaeve, yes. Okay. So so we still have kind of two chosen ones here, right? And yeah. and I think they that we've balanced this out. Um, the fact that she seems to be some kind of dream specific um mm -hmm. you know chosen one um is is of note and and is interesting here but um you know we've seen her rush through the ranks like there's clearly a stronger power in her than um you know we would have expected and you know i'm thinking a little bit about how we've talked about how the television show kind of put her into the mix of the possible dragon candidates a little yeah. more strongly and it felt a little bit like a kind of correction to the sexism that was present in the original books. But it's it's also like, hey, this feels like she's on a much more interesting story than that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, has grown as they've all grown. Um, they are all on more interesting stories than Rand, perhaps, um, which is why we aren't with Rand much this book. But um, it really feels like... Um, everything you just listed just is meant to demonstrate to us that she is not your average um, Aes Sedai and that will continue to grow. Yeah. Um, I really more than anything, just want Hopper and uh, Perrin to find her and the three of them work together uh, in the, in the Teleron Riode. Nice. We are learning pronunciation <laughs> that I definitely had said wrong for decades of my life. Uh, I think that Heron and Hopper are a team up that I always want more of. I think you're exactly right. I want to see, you know, those two paths intersect. And so I actually find the most disappointing section of this chapter is Perrin immediately finding Fayil and then having her vanish with no explanation. Like, I feel like this could have been used to develop Perrin in the dream effectively. And instead it makes it one of those like, video game quests or you beat the boss and then there's two more identical copies of the boss um I, I didn't get much out of it i guess is what i'm saying any thoughts that stood out to you in the the parent section i mean it uh, i had that exact same kind of comparison to there are a lot of video games where you go and you know you get three hits into the boss and then the boss just zoop Right. Yeah. Oh, well, what's the Mario thing? Like, uh, it's in another castle. Yeah. Or, yeah. or, uh, yeah. Um, it just kind of felt like that. Like, we can't let their plot be finished yet and have to yeah. make it difficult. And then my only note for the last piece is like, the luck is holding. They're just slicing through the ranks as they, as, uh, this would be back to Matt and yep. Sandar. Yeah. Uh, Julian Sandar. Advancing. Okay. So they're just advancing and cutting through again. I was, I was very much thinking of Helms deep with them, like, you yeah. know, uh, cutting along the walkway or the wall, just kind of working their way towards the dungeon, which yeah. is where they will hopefully find the, the girls, the women. Yeah. But then I'm like, don't get there too fast. Cause I want a Gwen in the dream world, or maybe yeah. they'll carry sleeping a Gwen like C-3PO on Chewie's back and Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> They'll just go to the final yeah. battle uh, with her in a bundle on on a, a backpack. Uh, I am about to make a comparison between this sequence and something that I truly despise, and I need you to not think that I am insulting the sequence. Uh, <laughs> I, I really felt like Matt battling the High Lords in this section and like accidentally defeating two of them with like back of the quarterstaff antics it felt like what I wanted Jar Jar Binks fighting in The Phantom Menace to be, <laughs> right? Like, just fumbling around and mm. accidentally shooting things. Like, I want to see this film so I can have that idea of a bumbling person accidentally winning a fight redeemed in my mind. Because that's the example I have, and it's it's god-awful. Yeah. Oh, it, I, I mean, 
people will people should send us a message because there are better examples than that. I'm but sure yes, there are, the yeah. kind of bumbling fool who does everything wrong and just happens to uh, to to win out because everything falls just perfectly. I feel like it's a it's a comedic kind of uh, not necessarily from a silent movie, but like I mean, Jar Jar is supposed to be like a silent movie homage, right? Like, yeah, it, and it feels very like to Buster Keaton, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's all I have for this chapter. It was a ton of fun and it, you know, I, I do think it's both action and the, I'll call it the editing. Cause it feels like cinematic editing where we're cutting between yeah. the characters so fast only works to speed everything up and make it feel like we're moving really into it. So, um, I thought I had a ton of fun. I mean, this is the high level of excitement I want to have at this point in the book. Uh, and I think then anything else you want to say about it? No, go all of you read the end of this book. It's so good. <laughs> you can do it now. I promise you're allowed. Uh, next week, we'll be covering two chapters. That's chapter 55, what is written in prophecy and chapter 56, people of the dragon. And then it's over. Then you'll be 20% of the way done. Greg, how excited are you? Very. Uh, don't forget to read the little bit at the end uh, as well, which oh, doesn't yes. get a chapter name, but but there's always the the one page little uh, bit and we will engage that. Uh, so excited. I want to go upstairs and read. But before I do so, I will remind our uh, listeners that we are going to cover those two chapters next week, along with a little bit of extra uh, discussion of visual media on a non-visual. Uh, nope, I messed it up. Discussion of a visual image on a non-visual medium. Uh, and then uh, we will return the week after for a kind of full book wrap-up discussion. The usual games Tyler likes to play to torment me um, in the final episode of this, yep. our third season, before taking a break for the holidays and starting book four. So uh, we begin and end this episode looking to the future, and we hope that you see good things in our future through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.